at this point, I mostly just tried to play tournament series where I can play a lot of buy-ins in a short period of time. Because I realized bad runs are normal and also good runs are normal. And you just can't worry about it. So I have always been pretty level-headed when it comes to the swings of the game. Yeah, I just always enjoyed being good at games. I was never really competing against other people or comparing myself to other people. I was more so just trying to be the best I could be. And that's still what I'm trying to do today. Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. And this week, we dig into part one of the two-part interview I just recently did with Jonathan Little. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for quite a while, you know that Jonathan is a regular contributor to what we do, uh, always giving input, always giving insight. Uh, I continue to get great feedback from our listeners about the value that he brings and the content that he brings. So I just want to publicly thank Jonathan for all he's done to help help build what we're doing here, to help give most of us more confidence as we're moving up in our games, whether that's moving from the bars and the home leagues into the small weekly tournaments or the small weekly tournaments into the bigger weekly tournaments or into some of the main events. Uh, I really want to thank Jonathan because I think he's adding a ton of value there. So I was excited to actually sit down and spend some more time with him rather than the the two to three minutes that we normally get each week. Uh, This gave us an opportunity to dig into some things a little bit deeper as well. A couple of quick housekeeping things. Uh, If you want to wear a Rec Poker patch, just let me know. There's no charge to you to wear the patch. All I ask is that you wear it. If I'm going to send it out, go ahead and wear it. I've got some that are adhesive that you can kind of stick on repeatedly or some that you can just sew on as well. Uh, Had a great picture of Brian Soja, who was playing the MSPT Regional Tournament. He actually flopped quads on the first hand of the tournament, and they had a nice picture of him and showed the patch, and I appreciate Brian wearing that and representing us. Uh, If you want to wear it, it's not, uh, you're not a a Rec Poker Pro, you're not an official ambassador, you're just somebody who's helping us promote the podcast. So I would love to have you on board for that deal. So with that, uh, let's just give a quick shout out to Running Aces, and then we'll come back with the part one of two interview with Jonathan Little. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. All right, everybody. Well, I am here with Jonathan Little, as promised, the voice that you continue to hear every week on Rec Poker. And Jonathan, man, thanks so much for all you've done for Rec Poker already, and thanks for taking the time to do a little more extended interview with us today. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm glad to be part of the podcast. And so now you're out in New York, so is that uh, is that home for you for quite a while, or is that a, a new venture? No, I've I've been in New York for, I think, seven or eight years at this point. Basically, I met my wife, and um, I, I moved in with her shortly after meeting her. So I've been here for about seven or eight years, and it's nice. Um, I don't really care where I live to some extent, though, mainly because most of my work is done remotely and I travel to play poker pretty much no matter where I live. Um, the last time I went to the casino every day to play was when I was, I, mean, I guess it's probably well seven or eight years ago at this point, I was living in Vegas and going to Bellagio every day. But um, there's not a whole lot of poker in New York, so that gives me plenty of time to focus on my coaching business. Now, and where are you originally from? I'm from Pensacola, Florida originally. Okay, so Pensacola to Vegas to New York. 
yeah, it was my mom's worst fear. I would grow up and move far, far away to Atlanta. And <laughs> right, right. then I moved to Las Vegas and then New York City. So, well, I mean, I'm in uh, just north of Minneapolis and I'm in the same situation as my kids are growing old and getting off to college. I just don't want them to move far away. So I'm thinking like two hours away is too far. So I can't imagine what your mom went through. Well, fortunately, they have airplanes now and airplanes make everything somewhat easy. You can be anywhere in the country in about eight hours. That is true. And, and I've, I've gone to Rwanda a few times, so I've proven that you can actually be literally anywhere in the world within 24 hours. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, your background, man. How did you, you know, mo- most everybody that's listening to this knows Jonathan Little. We know your name. We know your coaching. We know your books. But how did this whole thing start for you? Did you, did you grow up always playing cards or what happened there? I never really played cards or poker or anything like that. Um, Gambling was always thought of to be a bad thing around my household, but um, I played games a lot as a kid. So I played chess as a kid to some extent. I was never like really good or anything. I was like the best kid in my middle school, but that wasn't saying a whole lot. And then I played a game called Magic the Gathering. And one day after a Magic the Gathering tournament, um, one of the guys said, hey, you, you guys want to play a poker tournament for where the buy-in was essentially 10, 10 cent value magic cards. So a dollar buy-in poker tournament. And we did this every, every night after a tournament for about three or four months. And I eventually realized the same two or three people were winning every time. And I realized this was a skill game and not just purely a gambling game. So I studied it like I did chess and magic. And eventually I got pretty good, but I, um, I studied a ton of books before I ever really played for any significant money. My first deposit online was $50 and that was the only one. So that was pretty fortunate. And how old were you when you actually started playing? I was 18. So pretty young. I think I'm 33 now. So I guess that's about 15 years ago. So what is it about? I mean, is it, is it all just because strategy games are strategy games? And there's just different twists on it? Or what is it? What's the common thread between chess and Magic the Gathering and Texas Hold'em? Well, in all of the games, there's certainly an element of skill. If you play better than your opponents, you're going to win. And it just so happens that... Poker is a game where the skill and the luck line up nicely to where the bad players will win sometimes, which is a good thing. A lot of people get really annoyed when the weaker players win and they, because they feel like they deserve to win or something like this, the, you know, the better players. But the fact that the bad players get to win a decent chunk at this game is the reason why people play it for significant money. Whereas if you look at chess, like no one plays chess for significant money. And the same thing with Magic the Gathering. There's too much skill involved in those games. And the fact that there is a pretty good amount of luck in poker is the reason the game has thrived for so long. So, um, yeah, it, it allows. I, 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 I don't would, would not say poker is my favorite of those games, but it's the one that people play for significant money, and that's that's part of making a living from a game. You have to be able to play for stakes that matter. Do you do you have you continued to play those other games? Not. I don't play chess so much, mainly because I think my brain's ruined from online poker. I, I can't. I have a hard time sitting there thinking over decisions for many, many minutes. Um, so the last time I played chess, it was with like a very, very short time clock. And I was still reasonably okay at that where I have like three seconds to move or something like that. But I'm certainly completely drawing dead against anyone reasonable whenever we're playing with any long time clock. Um, and magic the gathering, I still play that a decent amount online, but it's one of those things where it is purely a hobby and I'm not going to be going to too many live magic tournaments because you go there and you just don't really have the potential to win any money. So I'm not going to go spend a whole day doing something like that. So um, I do play magic recreationally, but certainly not full time or anything like that. So are there other, are there other like variations of Hold'em or other poker games or any, any games that have sort of emerged 
recently that have kind of brightened to, to the next edge of, of trying to strategize and well, not really. Whenever I used to play a lot online, I would play no limit hold'em tournaments or cash games, whichever one was more profitable at the moment, for about four or five days out of the week. And then the other day or two, I would spend learning a new game. So I've spent, you know, a decent chunk of time, maybe two days a week playing a specific game for about six months in order to just become reasonably competent at it. Um, the only ones I think I'm good at are Pot Limit Omaha and Limit Hold'em, but I've played most of the other games that are available online. I haven't been, I haven't played the random games that take place in, you know, 14 game mix, but um, I have played most reasonable games, but I haven't really been actively trying to learn new games just because you don't get to play them. Right. I mean, I, like I said a second ago, I'm playing to try to make money for the most part. And that kind of implies learning and getting good at games that I can play on a regular basis. It's a little bit different than if you're playing recreationally where you're just trying to have fun and maybe challenge yourself or something like that, where then your goal is not necessarily to make money. Yeah, I'm curious about exploring that a little bit because, you know, for a lot of us, we play poker for fun. Obviously, we want to make money, and that's what we're trying to do is get better and better so we can make more money. Uh, But for some of us, it's still, you know, it started off as the hobby, the thing that we do for fun. And then I talked to a number of people that have played it more and more and eventually reached the level like where you're at, where you know, they don't even really like poker anymore. They, they do it because it's, it's their job. It's a living. How, how have you sort of balanced that? Or what does that look like for you in terms of, I assume starting it because, Hey, this is kind of fun. I'm hanging out with the guys, you know, playing some, playing some games. And now this is your whole life. Are, do you still enjoy playing poker or what does that look like for you? Yeah, I definitely still enjoy playing poker. There were certainly periods where I did not enjoy it so much. I've had two stretches in live tournaments where I have had no caches in about 50 tournaments, which is pretty common if you play a decent amount. Yeah. And after those periods, you're usually pretty annoyed and not really wanting to play anymore. So that does happen from time to time. Um, I was pretty lucky. Like Right after both those long downswings, I ended up winning a pile of money. So that was lucky but I just as easily could have just lost another 50 tournaments and then you're really not liking it. Um, So, you know, poker is rough and part of the good part of, I mean, I guess like one of the good things about the game is the fact that it is a rough game and even the good players are going to go through really tough periods where they just don't win. (laughs) Um, But no, so what I have found now is it's very nice to live a balanced life where I am at home for one or two or three weeks per month and then traveling and playing a lot for the other one or two weeks. And that allows me to really want to go out and play poker. And then after one or two weeks of playing poker all day, every day, I'm usually kind of over it. And I want to go back home and I want to work on the business side of things. And I do that for two weeks. Then I get tired of that. Then I go back and play poker again. So I found that having times away from poker will help you enjoy the game much more. And that's where a lot of recreational players, uh, that's where their mindset is, as opposed to professionals who show up and play every single day because professionals are playing every day, eventually they get tired of it. You get tired of anything if you do it all day, every day. And a lot of recreational players can't comprehend this because they only play four hours per week. And right. they're really looking forward to it. It's like they're the highlight of their week. So how much of your life would you say, when you when you think about the, the amount of time that you spend uh, revolving around poker, whether that's you know training or playing or educating yourself, how much of that, you know, how do you sort of split that time between working on the business and actually playing? Like how much are you playing these days? Well, it depends on the month. It usually probably works out to about 10 days per month. So probably about a third of the time if I had to guess. 
And that's just mostly playing high value tournaments or high volume tournament series where I can invest a lot of buy-ins in a relatively short period of time. Because now my main concern is being home with my family. I have a son who's 15 months old and I like hanging out with him. So I want to be home. That is my priority at this point in life. Say five or six years ago, my priority was to just play a lot of poker and make a lot of money. Now the priority is to be home and be a good father. So I was actively trying to figure out how to do that and starting some sort of coaching business from home allows me to do that. Um, my wife works 9 until 6 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. pretty much Monday through Friday and while she is working I'm also working and that allows me to get a lot done. So I, I basically have office hours where you know I I sit in front of the computer and work all day and I get a ton done in business and then I'm also home to spend time with my wife and son so it works out pretty nicely. That sounds like a pretty good balance to me. I'm curious about the you know how you select the tournaments that you play because I've I think you've mentioned this and some others have mentioned this before where you, you know, you, you want to play those tournaments where you have an edge. And so for any of us, regardless of what level we're at, if we play too far above our level, we don't have as big of an edge anymore, but yet, you know, to, to maximize the actual dollars earned at the table, you know, kind of your dollar per hour, if you bring it back that way, you, know, you kind of got to find that sweet spot, I think, between, you know, where's our, where's our edge, but where's the, the size of the financial potential gain. How do you, how do you sort of balance that? Or have you just over the years kind of determined what your sweet spot is? Well, at this point, I mostly just tried to play tournament series where I can play a lot of buy-ins in a short period of time. So for example, I just went to Florida where they had some world poker tour event at the hard rock and they had a $3,500 re-entry tournament, which is going to have a lot of people and it's going to be a very soft event. There's also a $2,000 tournament the day before that that was also going to be soft. Um, there's a $5,000 event after that and then a $25,000 event. And I know that the $25,000 event's always very, very good. Um, for example, in that tournament on the first day, we were playing eight-handed. Um, three of the players on my table, I'd never seen them before in my life. And they were clearly recreational players. And that's you know, for $25,000. It's a good value event. So that's the kind of thing I'm usually looking for. And... It, it's kind of weird whenever you're playing very large events and also like $25,000 events and then events that are one-tenth the size because that kind of skews bankroll management to some extent. But right. um, fortunately, I'm reasonably prof- or reasonably bankrolled for all these games, so it doesn't much matter. Once you get a very big bankroll, your goal, you're not really concerned with going broke, I guess is what it amounts to. Your goal instead is to try to find profitable spots and maximize your hourly rate. Whenever you are coming up, though, quite often you do need to be very concerned with bankroll management because you're often trying to push the limits. Like, I'm not trying to play as big as I can at this point because now going broke would be a disaster. Right. If you have, you know, 20K to your name, going broke is not the end of the world. So you should often be pushing it a little bit harder. But um, whenever I am playing a $25,000 tournament, I don't expect to have a huge return on investment, maybe 10% or 15%. But, I mean, 15%, it comes out to $3,500 a day or right. something like that, which is a pretty good hourly rate. That's the same as 100% ROI in a $3,500 buy-in tournament. It is. And often those fields are somewhat smaller, which makes variance lower to some extent. It's not exactly accurate because you have a, when you have a way higher ROI, you're going to cash and get in the money way more often. But I am usually not playing tournaments smaller than about $1,000. And that's just because in a $1,000 tournament, if you have 50% ROI, which is thought to be pretty good, 
it's $500, which is fine. But if you play it on average eight hours, it ends up not being a very good hourly rate. Right. And that's what I'm really trying to maximize for the most part at this point in life. Um, for most people though, if uh, there usually is some sort of buy-in level where they tend to not thrive above that. And for those players, you just need to grind it out where you are and continue trying to push up so that eventually you can have a positive expectation in those higher tournaments. That's so good. You know, I was looking through your, your Hendon Mob stuff, and I know uh, one of the shows we've talked about, you've contributed to talking about variants and how, yeah, you can go 50 tournaments without, without cashing, and that's very natural. It's a probability distribution function that's going to result in that sometime. But I was looking at this run you had from uh, May 2007 to November 2008 where you had three caches totaling about $3 million. Plus, you had, you had other caches in there too, but you had the Mirage Poker Showdown for about a million. You had the the one in Canada for about 740000 Then you had the $1.1 million at the World Poker Finals in Massachusetts. And this isn't about trying to get you to break, but I'm, I'm trying to trying to just try to get inside your mind a little bit. When you go on a, a streak like that, and maybe that's what really sets you up to be able to build the business and those sorts of things. But how do you, how do you sort of balance that knowing, boy, this is a, you know, this is a stretch where I'm really in a positive variant situation and not allowing yourself to get, you know, to get out of control in those sorts of situations and start playing, you know, too crazy and, you know, playing too big and, and blowing through your bankroll thinking that that return is always going to be there. How do you kind of manage that emotionally? It's kind of a tough question because back then I did not really understand what was going on. Like if I get one $1 million score now, I would be thrilled. But back then I didn't really care, which sounds horrible, but (laughs) I was certainly not aware of the, of how good things were at the moment. Mm. Um, I was always pretty well grounded just because the first year I played live poker, I lost like two thirds of my bankroll. And I think that was very, very good. I mean, you can look at Hindemob and you'll see the first year I played, I didn't really do a whole lot. And that was, I think a very good thing for me because I realized bad runs are normal and also good runs are normal and you just can't worry about it. So I have always been pretty level headed when it comes to the swings of the game. And I was also probably very fortunate at that time that they didn't have bigger tournaments. $10,000 buy-in tournaments were Mm -hmm. slightly out of my reach in terms of bankroll management. But whenever you're talking about average buy-in, they averaged in nicely and I could not play a hundred K's if I wanted to, because that didn't exist. Whereas, you know, if you take, me, if you, if you give someone my run that I had back then today, they'll probably be hopping in these hundred K's and you know, they may even have an edge and who knows, maybe, maybe I would end up winning all those two, or maybe I would have gone broke. It's tough to say, but it does seem like every year there are three or four players who run really, really hot and inevitably two or three of them try to play as high as they can. And they end up going broke or becoming very disgruntled because they think they're supposed to continue winning forever mm-hmm. like that. And I realized that was not the case because I'd already played online for three years and had lots of swings there. And I've already had one really, really bad year live. And uh, I, I think that was good. It basically taught me that this is not normal. However, all I really think about when I show up is I show up and I'm going to collect my return on investment. Sometimes you collect it in a, a huge chunk and sometimes you, or usually you lose. But every time I show up, like say I expect to make a thousand dollars on the day in a tournament. I don't really care if I win or lose that tournament. I'm just thinking, okay, I'm going to show up. I'm going to play my best. I'm going to make a thousand dollars today. And that's it. Like the trip I just went to in Florida, maybe I thought I was going to make 30,000 on the week on average, right? So I'm going to go there. I'm going to play. I'm going to make 30,000. I'm going to go home. Win or lose, it doesn't really matter. That's how it's going to average out long-term. So whatever is actually in my bankroll doesn't, or whatever comes back to me or whatever I lose doesn't really matter because I'm playing properly bankrolled. 
Yeah, that that's so good. I mean, that's such a a key to be able to detach kind of the emotional side of winning and losing from the I guess the logical long term expectation view that you have. Well, a lot of people, I, I think they really just don't want to lose money, and they associate loss as a bad thing. But you have to realize we all started with nothing, and here we are all here. If you can listen to this podcast, you have a little something, so we're already winning, and. I mean, I think most people have their basic needs taken care of who are listening to this podcast. And that's, right. that's all you really need. I mean, if I was to lose 95% of my money today, yeah, it would suck, but I, I would still be okay. I think there's a lot of value in just not really wanting things or needing to have things to feel successful. And I've never really needed those things. Like I don't want a fast car or a big house or anything like that. I want no car and the, small of, the smallest house I could possibly get by on. Because I realize these are just all things that cause headaches, and I don't want headaches. I want nice, simple things so that I don't have to deal with things that are irrelevant, is what it amounts to. Well, that's good, man. So when you, when I guess stepping back now, when you look back to those beginning days of playing poker and you know whatever that looked like, and you know, talk a little bit about did you have an expectation that you're going to become a professional poker player at some point, or how did you? What did the, what did that look like? That journey from just kind of playing a little bit, uh, putting the $50 in online to uh, becoming significant and becoming a factor in the poker world. Like walk us through that journey a little bit. Well, I, I really don't remember how it happened too much. I know I was playing limit hold'em initially because that's the only game that had books written about it. And that was the main game that was played online back then. And I had always played a decent amount of video games and I just kind of treated poker as a video game. My goal was to just make my account get as high as it possibly could. So I was playing very well bankrolled. At least I thought I was playing well bankrolled. I had about 100 big bets for limit, which is probably not enough, but that's what a lot of the books back then suggested. They didn't quite understand math back then. Um, so anyway, I was playing, you know, probably slightly underrolled for the games, but I was probably way better than the opponents because I had read a book or two and was competent enough and everybody else was completely incompetent back then. And that's all it really takes. If you're playing with a very big edge, you're going to grow your bankroll somewhat quickly. So that's what happened. I mean, like every two weeks, my bankroll is doubling. So I went double, 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 double. And next thing you know, we're sitting there with 100K in my account. And from there, I, I, didn't, I wasn't really thinking, oh, I'm going to become a professional poker player now. It was more of, I'm making so much money to the point that this may not last forever. And I need to make sure that I capitalize. So I'm not going to work my $10 an hour job anymore. And eventually I'm not going to finish college because at that point, when I did decide to quit college, I was about two and a half years into it, which is kind of a weird spot to quit because you're almost through the four years, but at the same time, you're two and a half years in and it's a pretty nasty spot to quit. But I was making about 20,000 a month then. And if I was to finish college, I'd make like 50,000 a year at a job. So it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to finish college at that point in time, given I could probably go back if I felt inclined. So... So in a sense, it just kind of took over you. It wasn't so much saying, okay, my vision to be a pro poker player. I'm, I'm trying to address some of, the, some of the conversations that I've had with recreational players. It's, it's not so much that you envisioned what it's going to be and you went after it. You just prepared yourself to be the best that you could be and turned out you were good enough that the decision sort of made itself. Yeah, I just always enjoyed being good at games. I was never really competing against other people or comparing myself to other people. I was more so just trying to be the best I could be. And that's still what I'm trying to do today. Like I realize a lot of people are just better naturally suited for these games. I mean, if you are a young kid today and you have all the free time in the world, 
you're probably going to get better at poker than I am just because you have all the free time in the world, as long as you find the right things to study. And I understand that that is how games work, but I was always just trying to do the best that I possibly could. And back then I had a lot of free time as most kids did or, and still do. And that allowed me to devote my whole life to poker for, well, I guess six or seven years. And if you do anything all day, every day for six or seven years, you're probably going to get pretty decent at it as long as you're taking time to reflect and study on as well. So would you say that's really the key to your success has just been preparation and study and application of those tools? I think so. Um, there was some article recently about how, like, what is the number one skill for poker players? And it, I, I generally agree with a lot of people. They said it's the ability to sit and study for a long time and then take things you learn from study and apply them. I mean, whenever I was playing sit and goes, I eventually moved from limit holding to sit and goes because I thought I could make more money per hour playing sit and goes. Um, every day I would play for something like four hours. Then I would review every single game. I had a program back then that would tell you spots that maybe you're screwing up and I would review every game and I would look at all the spots where maybe I was screwing up and that ended up taking two or three hours and I would play another four hours and then I would look through all those games. And you know, that right there is a nice 14 hour day, which is you know, most of your day. So I did that all day, every day for three years and got really good at sit and goes. And I, I think that's generally what you have to do if you want to get very good at something somewhat quickly. And so at that point, what I'm hearing is a lot of, you, you understood enough of the game where you could do some self-assessment. At that point, you weren't bringing along a coach or a mentor. You, were, you, were, you knew enough or you had enough growth potential that you could address the problems yourself, right? Well, I was posting on various poker forums and talking right. with a group of people online. So to some extent, they were my coaches. I mean, they were teaching me about these tools to use. And we were discussing the game on the side. I mean, they weren't really my coaches, but they were my peers. And throughout my career, I have hired coaches multiple times. I remember one time I had about 25,000 in my bankroll or so. And I paid a guy $5,000 for 10 hours of his time, 500 an hour. And it took me from being something like a 6% return on investment winner to 8% return on investment winner which doesn't sound like a whole lot in these sit and goes, but that's an extra, what was it? An extra, I think $4 per game or something like that when I was playing the $200 games and I was playing 3000 games a month. So four times 3000 is a lot of money. It's 12,000 bucks a month, right? Right. So it easily paid itself off in a month. And I've always been very quick to hire a coach because when you hire a coach, you're basically paying some amount of money for, everything they've learned throughout their career. And they're telling you exactly what you need to hear, assuming they're a good coach. And they're going to teach you what you are doing wrong and how to fix it. And I mean, it, it's so cheap compared to the value that you get, assuming you can apply what you are learning. But, um, but yeah, so I've, I've always tried to surround myself with a good peer group. And I mean, recently I bought a piece of a poker backing company called Pokar. And that's because I wanted access to their training materials. They teach all of their backies, basically cutting edge stuff. They hire the best coaches in the world, the best online players in the world to teach their backies. And I wanted to get access to that. So I'm still surrounding myself with people who are better than me. And I think that's why I continue to still have reasonable results, despite not really playing a ton. Well, and, and you're taking all of those learnings and you're passing that on to folks too, through pokercoaching.com and some of the other things that you're, that you're involved with. And I'm, and I'm want to shift a little bit to that uh, specifically as, you know, we think about the recreational players and that means something different to everybody. Of course, some recreational players are, you know, are spending $200,000 a year in buy-ins and some recreational players are at $5,000 a year. But, you know, for many of us, we hear that word coaching and we hear the 
$200 an hour or $500 an hour rate. And we just like, well, there's, even if we do the math, it seems like how can we possibly stomach that sort of investment? So what other options do we have? And then there's things like pokercoaching.com, which I, I have people ask me every week, Hey, you know, what do you know about Jonathan's, uh, you know, Jonathan's program, you know, how, how do you, how, what advice would you give and, and feel free to plug your own stuff because it's good stuff. But how do you address this for the, the guy that's playing, you know, ten to $15,000 a year of, of buy-ins who wants to get better, would maybe like to explore going to that next level, but, you know, he's working full-time, he has a family, and he's trying to juggle how do I get better with all of the other demands on life. What, what sort of suggestion would you have there? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a tough thing because I realize life takes a ton of time for the vast majority of people. That's why the young kids often have a decent edge because they don't have life going on. Their life is, you know, go to school for a few days a week and that's it. Um, But so I developed pokercoaching.com, which basically has a lot of interactive quizzes where you go through hands that I played or someone else played. And like, let's say they fold you in the cutoff and you have nine, seven suited. They'll say, do you want to raise to 100, 200, 300 or 400, for example. And then I'll, you'll click the button, whichever one you think is ideal. And then I will give you my thoughts on that answer and all the other answers. Then you go to the flop. Let's say the big blind calls. Flop comes 10-8-3. Your opponent checks. They'll say, should you check? Bet some number, some number, some number. And then we give thoughts on that situation. And then we go through the entire hand. And you will eventually see spots where you are playing well and also spots where you're playing poorly. Like a lot of people come to me saying, you know, they realize that they play the turn in the river quite poorly, which is good because it means they have a lot of room to improve. Um, so that's one aspect of pokercoaching.com. The other is the monthly homework question where I'll pose a question where let's say they fold you in the cutoff and the players in the blinds have some number of big blinds. And I'll say, what is your raising range? Not what, not how do you play your pocket aces or your nine seven? What is your whole range and how do you play it? And then we'll say, let's say the big blind calls, the flop comes, whatever, nine, seven, four, the big blind checks. How do we play our whole range? Now we're trying to break down which hands are we betting? Which hands are we checking? And Then we'll say, let's say you bet. That means all of your checking hands are no longer in your range and your opponent raises you. Okay, how are we defending with your whole range, right? This is how you need to think about poker. And thinking about poker in this manner is going to make you very, very difficult to play against. And also thinking in this manner is going to allow you to see the holes in your own game. Because if you're ever folding everything or calling with everything, that's a problem because you're really exploitable in that spot. So... We have monthly homework questions. Usually they take the students three or four hours to go through and do them completely. And then um, I give my answer in a webinar. And then I go through every single student's answer and point out things I think are good or bad about that answer. Um, So yeah, that's it. It's completely free to sign up for seven days. I definitely tell everyone to go there. And whenever you have a free week, go there and binge through all of the quizzes, all the past homework questions. And then if you don't like it, just cancel. And if you do like it, stay on. But I definitely think it is a value for most people. I believe the current price is $27 a month and we run specials every, every now and again. So you can go there and sign up. And if there are any sort of specials, you'll be made known of those, no, 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 known about those. But I think that's a very good way to get up to speed quickly because you get to see how good players are playing in the quizzes. And then also you get to have holes pointed out in your game. Well, I think for, yeah, for everybody that's listening out there, you know, I think one of the things that those of us recreational players that are trying to get better, one of the things that we're doing a lot of is we're, we're talking to each other about, about different hands. uh, And that that's all well and good. And that's part of the growth process. But we know that we're sort of lacking that the, uh, you know, the expert voice in that. And so, 
you know, we're learning from each other, but potentially we're not even learning the right things or we're, we're not quite thinking about a situation fully. We're maybe leaving out a factor. And I think that's where a program like yours can come in and, and add that value that we're not getting ourselves without the expense of, you know, here's $10,000 for a coach for the year. Yeah. I mean, $27 a month is very, very cheap. I also, speaking to that concept of talking to other good poker players, as opposed to the people out at your roughly same level, I wrote a book recently called Excelling at No Limit Hold'em. Mm-hmm. That's, it's about 500 pages long, but it's about 20 pages on various topics from the best player in the world at that specific topic. Like, for example, we have a chapter on Heads Up, No Limit Hold'em by Olivier Bousquet, who's one of the biggest winners online, Heads Up. Um, I wrote a chapter on final tables. I'm quite good at sit and goes and sit and goes are basically final tables. And there are lots and lots of chapters, I think 18 or so by all these authors. And I made this book because I realized I had the opportunity to go and talk to all of these best players in the world on a regular basis. Whenever I'm traveling, we'll like get lunch together, meet up in the airport and talk about stuff. And I understand that most poker players never get that. So I made that book because I wanted to be able to bring that to people who wanted to have that in their lives. So it's, the next best thing to sitting down and having uh, a lunch conversation with a lot of the best players in the world at specific aspects of poker. Yeah, that book is fantastic. It's probably, uh, as you know, we did we did a, a rec poker book study on one of your other books, uh, Professional Tournament Strategies, and, and this Excelling at No Limit Hold'em is the next book that we're kind of looking at saying, man, if we're going to do another group, let's do that one and kind of walk through it. So uh, I do highly recommend that book as well. Yeah, that's that would be a good one to do a book group on too, because it's already broken down into very concise pieces, whereas most books, they kind of flow together. Um, with, with Excelling at No Limit Hold'em, if someone misses a week, it's not a big deal because you're just going to start off with a different chapter by some by a different poker player. Okay, so we're going to end the interview right there. Uh, we'll pick up next week with the second half of that interview. I know it's tough to kind of chop this up, but I want to make the the length of these podcasts fairly reasonable so it's not a big burden to listen to them in one sitting. So we'll be back next week with part two of Jonathan Little's interview. Just a reminder, if you would, if it's not too much of a pain, go ahead and and subscribe to us, uh, rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, tell your friends about us, retweet us, let let people know about what we're doing here, especially if you enjoy what we're doing. Uh, If there's some things that you think we could do better, man, please, please tell me. I don't know... Uh, what we can improve unless people tell me. So I welcome that input as we want to continue to make this better, make this valuable content for people, not just some other, another poker podcast that's out there just kind of uh, causing noise. So we want this to be great. So please let me know how we can make that happen. If you haven't already, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or feel free to just reach out to me directly if you have any questions or concerns, stevefredland at gmail.com. Thanks. Thanks.